Good morning. It's my privilege to speak again this week. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 5. <laughs> Seriously, do it. We're starting there today. I'm going to shake things up a little bit. The title of today's sermon is Reproving Through Holiness. Our primary text will be Ephesians 5, 13 through 14. And as you're turning to Mark 5, I'll read our text from last week and this week. It says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We talked last week about how we are not to be um, of the world, but we are going to be in it. God is not going to remove us, as we saw in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. We are here in order to be a light. As a great example of that, I wanted to take us to Mark chapter 5. Let's go there and see the story with Jesus. In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and then the country. And people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You see, this idea of how we are to be in the world but not of it was described, obviously, beautifully in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. But we see this problem illustrated here in the way that Jesus dealt with this man who lived in the tombs, possessed. See, Jesus exercised the demons and drove them out of the man, but at the end we see him seated 
We see him clothed and in his right mind. Suddenly, he sees that the Lord is getting ready to leave at the request of the people. He's about to enter into a boat. And the man runs after him, expressing a desire, just pleading that he might be able to go with Jesus. But Jesus refuses his request. He says, no, go back to your hometown. You could hear it this way. Go back to the very place that you have suffered so much and where you have lived in this terrible condition. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this passage, it sounds preposterous that our Lord should send this man alone and apparently utterly defenseless back to the city and to the place of his formal devil possession and misery, not allowing the man to go with him. When we look at this story, the request that the man has at the end of the story makes sense. It's a very natural desire to want to go with your Savior, right? But Jesus says, no, go back. You must go back. Even though the man thought to himself, oh, he's going to leave me and the devils will come back again. My only place of safety is to be with this man. Let me go with you. But Christ sends him back. Why? He says, go and tell your friends what God has done for you. Go and witness and testify there. And so he sends him back to witness and testify at home. But he sends him back with a power within him that the man had not yet realized. Guys, this is Christianity. This story is Christianity. We do not go out of the world upon conversion. We do not leave this place. We are still to live in this world. And in the midst of our former surroundings, relationship, and our jobs and our work, we are to live the Christian life where we are. You see, we can have fellowship with them without enjoying the things that they are doing. We can maintain contact with them. And the God-given hold that we have upon them for their good and for their benefit and for our good and for our benefit. But let us have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness in any shape or form. We must make it plain and clear to them that though we are interested in them as persons and as human beings, and though we may share certain common interests with them, we have no interest whatsoever in that which is sinful and harmful in their lives, and we will not invite it into our lives. They have no knowledge of God, they have no knowledge of themselves, and they have no knowledge of their purpose. They are ignorant to these things. And so we are told to take no part in those, right? We talked about how even the Christian culture, the Christian churches, can be playing with some of these things that we should not play with. About how we can absolutely abhor things and say that we would never dream of participating in them. And that may be true that we would never do it, but it's a lie when we say we never dream because we like to hear about it. And we start to toy with it in our mind. I was reminded this week of a Christian book that kind of did this exact same thing to me in my adolescence. Uh, some of you are familiar with the Every Man series. There's a book called Every Young Man's Battle. It was a book that was designed for young men that would help lead them in fighting pornography and addiction to those things. But that book probably did, to, both to me and to everyone, more harm than it did good. And Christian books on moral issues are often so explicit that they do as much to spread the problem as to cure it. And, and the, the problem with that book is I liked the illustrations that he gave. He gave more detail to a young man than I had ever been able to dream up in a Christian book. We have to be careful with the media that we have, whether it's Christian or not. 
We have to be careful about what we let into our lives and how we deal with it and why we're reading it. You see, we can give God's diagnosis and solution for sins without portraying every single sordid detail. It's that danger of desensitization that we talked about. And so what are we to do instead of participating in these things? Well, we're to expose them, right? Expose. Have nothing to do with these. Rather, expose them. And so we use 2 Timothy 3.16 because I had all the kids in here for Family Sunday and it was our camp verse. But what does 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 say? Right? Every word of Scripture is God-breathed, right? And is useful for doctrine or for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God would be well-equipped for every work that God has prepared for him, as we've seen in Ephesians, right? That God has prepared these things in advance for us. And so with that doctrine with that word of god we then have been talking about exposing these sins now again in our specific text we're speaking primarily of deep and dark sexual sin right but as we've seen from the implication it certainly stretches well beyond that right so with that let's talk about really today how to expose them and we we talked a little bit about it last week and i really wanted to push it forward so let's look at our text one more time and then we'll, we'll we'll jump into this Coming out of verse 10 and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You should take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Last week we talked mostly about take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness and how it is shameful to even speak of those. This week we're really going to focus in on the, but instead expose them, and then how he describes it in verse 13. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So what does it mean to expose something or to reprove something? It's not to just show our disgust or to denounce the thing or to reprimand it or to condemn it out of hand. Or even to be severe about it. And that's often what we think about when we hear uh, reprove or expose, right? You have it on the news, expose. You're going to make people embarrassed. You're going to show the deep, dark things and just kind of blah about it and say how horrible it is and that's the connotation that we typically have when it comes to this idea of expose and certainly that's the attitude of the pharisees who when they see these things they gather up their robes right and they take themselves away in a huff right or the pharisees who take a naked woman who's caught in adultery and throw her down in front of jesus wanting him to throw rocks at her that's what expose means to the pharisees and that's the danger is that it can mean that to us When we see somebody in the church, or particularly when we see unbelievers who are in sin, we want to take them and throw rocks at them. That's not what it means to expose. But it's often what we do to our brothers and sisters and maybe even to our spouses. And there are rocks flying everywhere in churches all over the place that need never be thrown. It also does not mean that you simply apply moral teaching to the problem. If we're not throwing rocks, then this is usually what we're throwing. We typically just apply some kind of moral teaching to the problem. Morality has teaching, right? But it's a teaching that is almost entirely negative. Can you think of any good examples of positive moral teaching? It just doesn't happen. It's almost typically always negative. It denounces evil things just because they are bad for the person and bad for society and just morally bad. And there it stops, right? 
For example, morality goes to the man who's drunk and gives him a lecture on the evil effects of alcohol on the body and drunkenness and all the statistics of drunk driving and how many people it kills. And that's where it stops. Another example, morality goes to the man who's addicted to pornography and gives him a lecture on the evil effects of porn on the mind, on the heart, on the body. It goes on to give statistics about the evil effects of porn on marriages and upon the size of the porn industry in America and the exploitation and slavery of young women and children and a thousand and other one things that are entirely and perfectly true statements, but every single one of them and every single person stops there. And that's supposed to change a man. That's what it means to expose or denounce to most churches, to most people. We're either Pharisees and throwing rocks, or we are self-righteous hypocrites who throw facts. In one sense, yes, it is reproof, but it's not truly so. It's merely the negative application of moral teaching. So how do we expose? If we're going to take Paul's admonition seriously to stay in this world and to understand that Jesus has a mission for us and indeed a commission for us, then how are we to stay here and take no part of these things but still expose? And so we pick up from where we ended last week. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only method of exposure and transformation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only method of exposure and transformation. See, when we talked about darkness last week, we, we had the understanding, and I hope you understand now, that darkness hides the ugly realities of evil, right? That's what we're talking about. It happens in the dark so that it is hidden, and so that it does not have to be seen for what it is. But the light makes them visible. And so evil is then seen for, indeed, what it is, without any possibility of concealment. But understand that light doesn't only expose. It's going to be easy in this idea of talking about exposing and reproving is just simply think about the fact that it's made visible because made visible is something entirely different than just able to see when it comes to scripture light doesn't only expose it transforms when we talk about the gospel of jesus christ being the only method of exposure it's also transformation so how can then darkness be light i mean it seems to make sense that in order to get rid of more of the darkness in here and we should, like, not use black carpet or black things. We should use white, right? That will make it brighter in here, right? No, that's not the way that you get rid of darkness. The way that you get rid of darkness is more light, brighter light. You can get it so bright in here that even the shadows under your chair become illuminated. You can't take darkness and make it light, right? The only way that you can take darkness and make it light is for it to be light, to add light and then transform it and so that's how the gospel is specifically unique it can make that curtain a light it can take a dead person and make them light second corinthians 4 6 we're going to touch on this twice today this for god who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ the gospel of jesus christ and god is that he can take darkness and turn it into light we were once darkness we have been made light and so for us the real meaning of the word expose or reprove i'm going to use those interchangeably is to convince by means of evidence or to convict by means of giving enlightenment and understanding i'll read that again 
The real meaning of the word expose or reprove is to convince by means of evidence. To convict by means of giving enlightenment or understanding. That's good coffee. It's our coffee. All right, so convince by means of evidence. To convict by means of giving enlightenment or understanding. It means this. We are to throw light, more light upon these things in such a manner that we really convince the person to whom we are speaking of the nature of what he is doing and what it means to his immortal and eternal soul. They are ignorant of God, they are ignorant of self, and they are ignorant of their purpose or the fact that they have an eternal destiny with the soul. And so we give light, we shed, we throw light upon these things so that we can convince them of the nature of what he is doing and what it means to his soul. We are not simply denouncing evil things in and of themselves. Instead, we are throwing upon them the whole light of the gospel. Here's the problem. We typically address non-Christians about just evil. We typically address each other about just evil. We are not to address non-Christians about particular evils alone, but in a loving and sympathetic and understanding manner, we talk to them. We talk to them about themselves, their souls, and their whole relationship to God. About the things of which they are ignorant, right? The tragedy about a man who is a slave to pornography is not all the practical things that we talked about. It's not the practical things of what it does to the mind, to the heart, to the soul, to the body. It's not even about the industry. It's not even about their marriage. It's not even about the exploitation of those women and children. It's certainly about that. But that's not the tragedy, first and foremost. The tragedy about a man who's a slave to pornography is not that he's simply addicted and that the consequences are bad to everyone involved, but that that man's relationship to God is altogether wrong. It is altogether wrong. He just got done telling us in chapter 5, verse 5, you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And that's the point. That's the point. To rightly reprove and expose means to throw the light of the gospel upon a man and his whole situation. We must get him to realize that he is darkness. That he has darkness within him. And that he is dwelling in darkness. That his entire and whole relationship with God is wrong. And understand this, that if he goes on living like this until his death, then he will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God and the wrath of God has and is coming upon him. That's what it means to expose. That's what it means to reprove. Take them apart in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what expose means. This is what Jesus did, right? With the tax collectors and the sinners. Everyone wants to throw that out there. Of course we're not supposed to leave the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hung out with the tax collectors and the sinners, and so we should do what 
They do, with them, where they are, right? How exactly did he do it? If you look at Jesus with the tax collectors and the sinners, he did not simply denounce them and their sins, right? He preached the gospel to them. He preached himself to them. Before the cross, there was a gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. He showed the love of the Father to them. And having made them realize the character of what they were doing, they saw the gospel. And that's what you and I are called to do. We are not to cut ourselves off from these people. We are not as self-righteous Pharisees just to show our disgust and our abhorrence or our superiority or our cleanliness. God forbid that we would ever do that. But the church has done this and has done it far too much. There are masses of people and people groups outside the church today. And it's partly because we are far too ready to give the impression to them that we are just respectable people. Not Christian people, respectable people. And say, no, 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 we don't do that. I don't do that. I think we do. We do it here. Renovation, we do it. We're tempted by this easily, to just be respectable, good people, and not Christians. We do it in our house gatherings. We do it on Sundays. We do it in DNA. All with each other. Not even the lost people. Us. We do it amongst ourselves. We try to appear respectable, not Christian. Guys, Christians need Jesus. Christians need the gospel. If we can't appear vulnerable to each other, if we can't show each other who we really are, then what gospel work are we doing? As a house gathering leader, and I know the other house gathering leaders feel this way, it's hard to facilitate a conversation, particularly one that is based on the gospel, when there is no need. I'm not saying if you're not talking that you have to talk. Yes, that's a part of it. That's not going to solve it. You can say all the great things that you want to during house gathering. But if you are not presenting and exposing yourself, the darkness that's in you, then there's no room for the gospel. You're already saved in your self-righteousness. We have to be vulnerable with each other. There's no point in coming together for an hour of dinner and fun talk and then sit there and review a sermon that we don't need. But that's the danger, is that we appear respectable to each other. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We need the gospel. And how do we use the gospel? Well, we, as Jesus, are to reprove, to expose, by talking the gospel to people. Not preaching, talk the gospel. They will know that we are different, that maybe even we once took part in certain things. But as he says in the bumper, we no longer do. We no longer do. Can it be said of you that you once were and that you are no longer? A respectable person is going to say, no, I never even did all that. That's a tendency. We want to hide our past. We want to hide our shame. I'm not saying that we need to flaunt it, but we do need to own it. And let that be the reason of why we needed the gospel. Why we needed to be saved. And understand that the put off, put on thing is still happening. 
Some of those things may still be on us. Put it off. Put it off together. Need the gospel together. Our business, our commission as Christians, as believers, as church people, as sons of the living God, is to let them know about the change that has come to us, that we were once darkness, walking in what? The sins of this world, our desires, our passions at war within us. But now we are no longer, we are light. And so we are to give them glimpses of a better life, a purer, a cleaner way of life. A life that's so much more enjoyable. I think the tragedy is that they think that our life is miserable and unhappy and at best, boring. And we can't blame them for thinking that way. See, if we look miserable and gloomy, if as a group of people we can't have a bit of joy, then yeah, they're going to think that all we do is give up everything and hate good things. It's because we do not show the joy of the Lord and the joy of salvation that they get this wrong notion of Christianity. That's not who and what we are. We are supposed to reprove them by showing that Christianity means a life of enjoyment, a life of happiness, a life of peace. And yes, happiness. You should be happy in the Lord. Your joy is found in Him leading you to happiness. And a life of peace. Christians, we get greater enjoyment here than they have ever known. More than we ourselves ever knew before particularly when we lived as they did. Our joy, our happiness, the, the reason that we should be a light is found back in Ephesians. Flip over two pages. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Because in Love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace of which he has lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. a life of enjoyment, a life of happiness, a life of peace. Everything that we could possibly need has been provided for us. Any enemy that could possibly rise against us has been defeated. We are loved and adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. Enjoyment, happiness, peace. 
it's found right here. And it's everything that Paul has been kind of throwing on top of us. And when we get here in chapter 5 and we're supposed to walk in light, this is the light. We've been united with Christ. And so we can walk in this. Guys, flash the light of the gospel upon yourself. The main point of this passage, yes, I want to be faithful outside of here. I think we've covered most of that, and we'll touch on it again. Flash the light of the gospel on yourself. Daily, flash the light of the gospel on your heart. Are these the things that you rejoice in? Are these the things that you live for? Or are they just icing on the cake if you hopefully make it to the end of the race? Run in such a way as to win. This helps you win. This helps you run hard. And after you flash the light of the gospel on yourself, then you can flash the light of the gospel upon them. So when we talk about flashing the gospel, yes, I want you to be reminded of those things. And that's, that's part of, of what we're talking about. If you're not in Scripture, you're not going to be Scripture. It just won't happen. You must be in it in order to see it and to understand it and be a part of it. So yes, flash it on yourself. But what do we mean when we talk about talking the gospel? I know you're asking, how do I use the gospel? You keep saying that this is the key to, to exposing and to transforming. So I say, use the gospel. What do I mean when I say you've used the gospel? I think there's two dangers. One, honestly, Christians, usually preachers, will use the gospel ambiguously to avoid having to contextualize and apply. It's hard work to do that. It's easier to say, live gospel-centered lives, guys. Go out there and be the gospel to people. Talk the gospel to your heart. Use the gospel in your work and your family. Be gospel-centered, right? Did I help you? No, but I just hit all my contacts, right? We, we can tend to do that. That's, that. that's easy. It's hard work to actually contextualize and apply. But here's the, here's the second danger. All right? It's not just from up here. Christians don't actually get the gospel. I don't think we really understand what the gospel is. Read your Bible. You'll see the gospel at work, how it redeems the story. You see, you see the gospel at work when you see Adam and Eve hiding in darkness, to use our language from today, when they sin. God comes looking for them, and what do they do? They cover themselves and they hide. How does the gospel redeem that? He kills an animal, clothes them, gives them a promise of redemption. What were their concerns? Broken fellowship, shame, sin, death. All of these concerns that they had that caused them to hide, lest it be exposed. God comes and exposes those concerns and offers the remedy for them. As you read scripture, you begin to see that pattern. You see that pattern with David and Nathan. David's concerned. He wants to hide his sin. He goes so far as to hide his sin and kill a man in order to hide it. And what does Nathan do? Nathan goes to David when he's in his throne room, secluded and hiding. And he says, you are that man. And he exposes the concern. And what does he do? There are consequences, guys. There's consequences to all these things. But he offers hope and he offers redemption. And as you read through the scriptures, you begin to see the gospel at work as people talk the gospel to each other. In the Old Testament, before Christ came, before Calvary, before the resurrection, it's the story of scripture, it's the story of people's lives. 
When we talk about talking the gospel to people, we're saying, how does it redeem the story? How does the gospel work? If we're talking about talking it, we're talking about utilizing it, what was it about Nathan? What was it about God that not what he said and what Nathan said? What was it about Nathan the prophet? What was it about that that made it effective, that made it work? I know you want like the practical how-to here. This is, the, this is the meat and bones of it, okay? Why did the tax collectors and sinners draw near to Jesus? We already talked about how he was with them. Why did they let him? What drew them nearer to Jesus? Why did they even listen to him? How did he flash the gospel, talk the gospel, make things? How did he make darkness light? He continued to have contact and conversation with unbelievers. And he had a desire, as we must, to make them begin to feel that they are missing something tremendous. Jesus was with these people, and he began to make them feel like they are missing out on something enormous. So why did they draw near to him? He was absolute purity and holiness, and he was still a magnet on them, and they drew near to him. There's something attractive about holiness. There's something attractive about holiness. It makes us, at the same time of being attracted to it, it makes us feel unworthy and unclean when we look at it. It makes us see the things that we are doing in a way that negative or moral teaching never does and never could do. (coughs) It shows us our need. And at the very same time it shows us our need, it offers us a glimpse of something that's so wonderfully different from our past. So much better. So much wonderful than anything we could possibly know. Holiness ought to be attractive. It ought to be loving. It ought to be enticing. It ought to be charming. It ought to draw people in. Holiness does not just make people run. It draws people in. People were drawn to Jesus. Our culture is going to tell you it's just because he was loving or even compassionate. Yes, we need to be loving and compassionate. Love is the foundation for all of these things. Love is the foundation for you going. But love is not what is attractive. Holiness is what is attractive. The love compelled him to go. The holiness is what compelled them to come. That is what is meant by reproving. And that is what it means for us to make darkness light. That's how we are to expose. Holiness is what exposes and transforms darkness. And so we jump into 14 as we kind of bring that home and say, what is made visible is light. It seems to be speaking of the transforming power of the light of truth and purity. One of our commentators, O'Brien, says this, He says, the disclosure of people's sins affected through believers' lives enables men and women to see the sinful nature of their deeds. Some abandon darkness. Some abandon the darkness of sin and they respond to the light so that they become light themselves. 
And we know that this understanding is confirmed by verse 8, which speaks to the transformation that had taken place in the reader's experience. And then further by the confession and at the end of 14. Another commentator paraphrases it this way. He says, It is even possible, after all it happened to you, for the light to turn the thing that it shines upon into light also. That is the power of the gospel in transforming and exposing darkness. And we see this fully in 2 Corinthians 4 again. Starting in verse 1 this time, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.8 tells us, for at one time you were darkness, but light shined out of darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Christians, you must awake to the glory of the light. You must awake to the glory of the light. The gospel is the only thing that can expose and transform the hearts of unbelievers and sin in this world. We must be certain of what we are, and we must act accordingly. must awake to the glory of light. Verse 14, For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I want to focus kind of our last bit of attention on this idea of this, this little hymn that is in there. I think it's likely that this comes from a kind of Easterish type hymn or a baptismal him our commentaries devote like four pages to this him alone and like two pages to the previous three verses they're trying to figure out where this came from here's the important parts it says what it says and paul seems to address it as if it has the force of scripture um, and he's using it in his argument so for us it's scripture <laughs> that's how we handle it that's how we will we'll deal with it today I don't know where this specifically comes. Most people seem to think that it's kind of an amalgamation of, of several different things. But I think what it is, is they're combining passages on the resurrection and light, um, such as Isaiah twenty six nineteen. very likely, I think, Isaiah 60, verse 1, and maybe even Jonah 1, 6. The point is this, these words are probably a hymn or an early confession that was used at baptism. You can think of this as like a phrase of like the Westminster Confession for us. This is like a very early kind of confession that the early church had. Very likely Hebrew in nature because it actually uses the word um, uh, Christ, so it's not Greek in, in nature. So all that to say this. The idea here is that those baptized in the faith would be reminded to rise and shine. Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
You see some of the Hebrew parallelism then, awake, O sleeper, arise, dead, right? It's a beautiful short little passage here. It's just a call to action. It's a kind of a call to further life as a believer. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Understand this is a description of conversion. It's kind of explaining the statement that everything is illuminated by light, and everything that is illuminated is light. Paul's logic basically runs like this. The lines of this well-known liturgy tell us that unbelievers should awake to the truth of the gospel and rise from their former lives of sin. And if they do this, Christ will shine his powerful light on them. This is how we know that every unbeliever illuminated by the gospel is transformed into light. Kind of what we talk about when we talk about irresistible grace. When the light of a believer is shined onto an unbeliever and they begin to exhibit light, they are light. Paul's giving a call at the end of this this discussion on the wrath of God and these sins that need to be exposed. We have a short call of a awake, O sleeper, to those that are lost. Arise from the dead. Be saved. And the light of Christ will shine upon you. And so Paul's saying that these unbelievers should awake to the truth of the gospel. They should rise from their former lives of sin. When they do this, Christ will shine his powerful light on them. And this is how we know that every unbeliever illuminated by the gospel, they are now light, is transformed into light. When they are illuminated, they become light. They were darkness, they are now light. And Paul is clearly speaking of more than simply shaming people by revealing their hidden sins. The exposure of their unfruitful deeds of darkness can lead to their conversion. The reason we expose is not simply to say, look, there's darkness. But it's to say, darkness, become light. Sounds like creation to me. Now it's a new creation. The exposure of their unfruitful deeds of darkness can lead to their conversion. They can be transformed from death to life and from darkness to light. They can know God. They can know themselves. They can know their purpose. When Christians awake to the glory of the light, they understand that the light that they are in the Lord is used for the conversion of lost souls. But I think there's also a very clear implication for believers in this little poem passage. It's a call to those that are lost, but I think it's a, there's an implication for believers. I think you see that because of the careful wisdom that, is, that follows it in verse 15 that Matt will be picking up next week. There's kind of a warning and wisdom and, and sobriety about the danger that was before and how we should act now. And so we have this coming wisdom, but we also have the implicit danger before of looking for the warning, looking for the wrath of God, understanding that if we continue in darkness, then we are darkness. So there's danger. So I think there's an implication for believers here and the idea of being awake. Well, see, the danger is that it's, it's entirely possible to be slumbering light and even to be well-regarded by others in the church, especially by others who are in the same state. It's possible to be asleep and appear awake. It's possible to pray while asleep, mouthing phrases that others have used before. It's possible to sing a hymn without being awake to the words. 
possible to walk while asleep and even end up in harm's way. It's possible to live a dreamy life of unreality in the netherland of inaction. Guys, sleep looks a lot like death. It's one of the scariest parts for me about early fatherhood, and then I found out that it happens every time you have an infant. Are they breathing? They're sleeping. Are they breathing? Do you see the little, tiny little, little chest move just a little bit? Okay, they're alive. Whew. Are you peeking the door? Is the baby sleeping? No, it's dead. It's dead. I got to go. Oh, it just moved. Okay. It's horrifying to me. I can't stand it. I hate it. I want, I want to spend hundreds of dollars on that mat that just sits in there on them and, or under them and lets me know that they're breathing. I'll feel better. Because sleep looks a lot like death. I don't want to get creepy, but if you look at your spouse when they're sleeping, unless their chest is moving, they look dead. Sleep looks like death. So that's called the long sleep. They went to sleep in the Bible, right? Sleep looks a lot like death, guys. And so Paul says, awake, O sleeper. Guys, we must live out the ethics of light that we saw just two weeks ago, producing all that is good, all that is right, all that is true, exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. That's what we are to be about. So sleeper, you must awake. The reward is this, Christ will shine on you. Slumbering light awakened resounds with more light. Take care that you, like the student who sleeps through class, are not awoken by the sound of a bell or a trumpet on the last day and have been found to have missed it all, being asleep the entire time lost to yourself. We must awake to the life of the gospel and its implications for our life. When we are light, we must shine as light. And we must shine brighter. We must pursue holiness as we talk the gospel to people. We shine light on ourselves so that we shine light on others. As we become brighter, the gospel shines brighter. And we only do that by appropriating the gospel ourselves. As when awakened Christians who were once darkness but are now light shine the light of truth and righteousness in a dark world with their words and their deeds, they make visible the shameful and secretive deeds of darkness. They may also be used, though, to help those in darkness come to the light themselves. You want to live out your identity as a missionary? Be light, talk the gospel. If you want to do that, be a learner. Learn the gospel. You're not going to get better at being a missionary by simply practicing on unbelievers. That may be dangerous for some of you. (laughs) We practice. The people who know how to talk the gospel talk it to themselves. You can practice talking the gospel to yourself in one day enough to counter like 50 discussions with lost people. You want to know what to say to someone? Talk to yourself. Talk the gospel to yourself. You know how to do it in DNA, if you have been in DNA. What are you not believing? 
Where's your story wrong? How does the gospel redeem the story? The problem is, is we want to appear respectable and we want to be the hero of the story. And so wherever our fall is in our life, we find a way to be self-righteous and be the hero of the story. It's okay to be the damsel in distress. You have a husband who's coming for you one day. And he laid his life down for you already. Most of our lives are like Mario. The, <laughs> the prince keeps getting taken every single level. That's who we are, right? And it's okay. He's coming again for us. But if you want to try to fight your own way out, it's dark there, guys. That's not what the gospel's for. The gospel saves sinners. And so as we expose darkness in this world, we rebuke and expose and reprove by showing something of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. We radiate upon them the light of the gospel. We remember that Christians are the light of the world. And in your light, they will see themselves and what they are doing as they have never seen or done before. And they will long to be cleansed, to be washed, to be purified, to become holy as you are holy, but above all else as Christ is holy. Do not be partakers with them. Have no fellowship with what they are doing and reprove them as you are light in the world. I'm going to pray and celebrate. We're not going to be mopey, sad Christians. We have cause to celebrate. We can be excited. We can proclaim the glories of our great God. We can trust in the rock that we stand upon. He's coming for us one day. He's already come once. Let's pray, and we will sing. Father God, you are so good to us. You are so, so good to us. Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the grace that you have on us to expose sin. Father, we know that you could have left us here, and there was nothing to stop you from destroying this planet again. Father, despite all the evil that's in our world right now, and as we are more and more exposed to it, we should remember that you have cleansed the earth once already, and you have not yet done so again. We know that things could get worse. We know that it's your mercy and your grace that restrains them. And Father, we know that it ultimately points to our need for you. When we see it so easily in the world around us, Father, I pray that you would help us see it in ourselves. Father, as we talked about so much last week of exposing the darkness in our own heart and understanding what it means to not participate with it, that we would see that the only answer is light. Father, that we would love the light and that we would love you because you are light. Father, let us not be like it was, Jesus said, that they loved darkness. Father, we don't want to love darkness. We want to love you. Help us see that we need you. Instead of throwing rocks or instead of throwing our moral judgments. Father, let us bask in your holiness as we pursue holiness and repentance and faith. Father, I pray that we would believe rightly who you are. It would help us be and see light more clearly. Father, we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.